Welcome back to part two of our Sound of the Fury series for April in Paris. Lovely Brianna Poston joined me for this discussion when I went back home to Arizona for Christmas break, actually. She had a lot of really riveting key things to say about the text, so that's why I split it up into so many different chunks. And without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome back to Didion Hawthorne in the In-Between. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to my podcast about the relevancy of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. Okay, we're going to get into some questions here. So it's relatively well known that the title of The Sound and the Fury is taken from Shakespeare's Macbeth, but what is the significance of the title contextually, and how does the fact add, if at all, to your experience as a reader? It's a lot to think about. I mean, when I was writing this question, I wrote it because I didn't know the answer. <laughs> So. Yeah, and I don't think there really necessarily is a right answer. Um, like, I have the quote from Macbeth, mm-hmm. if you read it. Ooh, yes. Um, so, this, the quote is from Macbeth, Macbeth, right before he kills himself. Mm-hmm. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Um, so, just thinking about that quote... I thought a lot of how it meant kind of towards an idea of how insignificant life is Mm. and not that one's own life is unimportant but that in the grand scheme of things it doesn't really make a significant difference and the where he says signifying nothing um, I think that kind of encapsulates like the whole idea of how little life is mm-hmm. and how little one life is um, and I think a lot of people kind of relate the it is a tale told by an idiot to Benji yeah mm-hmm. because of his it's not necessarily defined like in the novel but He's probably autistic in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's related to Benji a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, but I think that um, when Macbeth says a tale told by an idiot, he's kind of suggesting that we're all idiots. Like none of us yeah, know what we're doing. Definitely. We don't know what happens. Uh, there's no way that we can confirm it, so we're all ignorant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love that the way the sentence is structured because oftentimes I think we quote Shakespeare as being like really irreverent at times but um, he usually gets to the point pretty quickly in his statements and in monologues and soliloquies he also like just gets to the point really fast and then like examines it over and over again in different ways. Yeah, there's just like, ah, yes, we'll put the word sojourner in here and then we'll do like three (laughs) metaphors. Yeah, and so it's interesting with, in this case, because the point of the sentence is at the end when he puts that little dependent clause signifying nothing Mm -hmm. and that's really atypical of him. And so it was keen of Faulkner, as we've already discussed, to kind of pick that out of all the things. Mm-hmm. And Macbeth, like, what, I don't know. It's it's not a tragic comedy at all, but, like, it's just what a, what a glorious book. And Lady Macbeth is, like, 
my all-time favorite character, so. And I think that because this is said, like, right before a suicide, it really just kind of, like, totally encircles the whole idea of life and how short it is and, like, what it can mean to you. Yeah, and in terms of how this adds to the book, like, I've never really looked at this quote, I don't think, but I've always known that the Sound of Fury came from Macbeth, and it kind of gives an aura to it that's like, oh, like, this is derivative of another masterpiece, Mm -hmm. and it's cool to see how everything is kind of connected, and, like, we can talk about, like, very different authors on the surface, but they're all the same in a lot of ways. Yeah, and especially because Shakespeare is so influential in it doesn't matter what language of literature, like, there is Shakespeare in every piece of literature you will pick up, like, that's how influential Shakespeare Mm -hmm. is. Um, So, yeah, even though, like, people think that William Faulkner is a really big author, like, there was always someone before him that started ideas. True. We were talking about Beowulf yesterday, um, and I was, I haven't read Beowulf, so I can't really say I know. You haven't read Beowulf. I know. Should I read it in Old English? That's another question. Um, I would read it in <laughs> regular, tangible English first. <laughs> Actually, you can get a version where um, it has the Old English version and then the Modern English version Ooh, right next to each other. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, so we're talking about Beowulf, and I was like, you know, that's one of the most infamous pieces of literature. I don't know why I was reminded of that just now, but yeah. (laughs) I think just how, I mean, this is really kind of hitting me now that I've graduated and I had to do like my little passion project Mm. um, and reflect on what I've learned as an English major. And um, I talked a lot about my professors and the curriculum that they took me through. Mm. And just in these three years, I've read so many books. Yeah, I remember just last year, like, the amount of books you had to read, it was insane. And that's just so much knowledge that I have in my brain now. It's so mind-blowing to think about that, Mm -hmm. that I have all these books still on my bookshelf that I have notes in and all of the stuff that I can use in my life. So question two, how do the stream of consciousness techniques work with or against Faulkner's high literary style? Is there a, a systematic or literary reason why the book is organized the way it is? So in other words, Benji, Quentin, Jason, and then Faulkner, and like kind of as a bonus, what is the significance of the Benji section? Like what did it add and why was it so transformative? Uh, well, we kind of talked about how the William Faulkner slash Dilsey section is yeah. serves as like an epilogue, mm-hmm. kind of like a tying the bow around everything, mm-hmm. just out of all of the like emotional turmoil that we as readers experience mm-hmm. going through these first three sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the last chapter serves as a nice little mold for everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering, I suppose I've always wondered, I've read this book like, I don't know, three or four times, not enough times, <laughs> but I've always wondered about the Jason section because it seems so out of place, at least to me. And. I don't know if he just needed like a bridge between Quentin and Faulkner or if, I don't know. Well, I think if, assuming that the sections serve to illustrate different like mental dynamics, um, I think that while 
Benji, Quentin, and Jason are all dysfunctional in their ways. Um, I think that it was important to show how they were all dysfunctional mm-hmm. because they're all big parts in the family. Mm-hmm. And especially Jason, how um, he develops like such a strong relationship with his mother. Mm-hmm. And how that affected the rest of his family. Mm-hmm. Like everything is just a domino effect that we just learn mm-hmm. domino by domino. Um, one thing, working off of each other, um, building off of the next thing. Um, so I think that with Jason, um, I kind of find it as the most chaotic. Jason's section is when we find out a lot more about the family. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, I guess, technically the the rising action, or yeah. rather like the peak. Yeah. Um, I think that's when we find out like all the dirty secrets of mm-hmm. the whole story that um, the first two sections were alluding to. So I think that not necessarily that the secrets had to be revealed in Jason's section, mm-hmm. but since they were that. Jason's section had to be the second to last. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, hmm. I've been thinking a lot about the mother figure, actually, because she's a minor character in the book, but she's so, I don't know, she adds so much to the story. And they, Faulkner uses her as kind of like a pivot point between all of the characters, because there's Benji, which is why, and she's, I don't know, there's Quentin the eldest, Benji and the mother is affected by all of the boys in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Dilsey acting as a substitute for the mother as well is so cool. <laughs> I think that Benji's section had to be first too because of his like innate innocence um, mm. or ignorance. He's just so sheltered and like unfamiliar with the public world, I think that it was appropriate for him to be first. I don't know, I wonder how it must have felt for Faulkner when he was first like publishing the book and he didn't know what the critical response was going to be and he didn't know how it was going to turn out. Because, I mean, Ulysses was published in 1922, which was a bit before this book. Um, so it wasn't like the world was completely dark to this kind of style. But at the same time, The Sound and the Fury offers something that's rich in a different type of arena in terms of character and especially with Benji because I don't think a lot of this kind of um, putting it in first person perspective with this kind of character was very common. (laughs) Oh yeah and I don't think that um, like recognizing autistic people as mentally dysfunctional was any sort of idea in the early 20th century so Mm. I think that I think we see that a lot in the book too, how not a lot of characters in the book know how to react to Benji or react around him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of like encapsulates how, like the time that it was written in, as well mm-hmm. as like the vulnerability that people have towards society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I do think also that it makes sense stylistically that Benji is first because there's just kind of a you start with a big bang and then it doesn't dissipate at all but there is a sort of sense of like the clarity 
um, increasing as the book continues. And he's the youngest, so I think it kind of helps to understand the book chronologically. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, because the sections are written out of order. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Out of chronological order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's that's another cool part of the book is that you jump around in time almost as you would organically. Like, I don't think about time being like, I was six years old and then I was seven. Like, sometimes I'm just like, I'm going to remember when I was six and then I'm going to go back to now. <laughs> Yeah, and that's how like fluid memories are. Yeah. And I like that not only are the sections not necessarily chronological, but some pieces within the sections are written out of order. Mm -hmm. Like in Benji's section, we'll get a piece from when he was a young, young boy. Mm -hmm. And we have to kind of assume that based on mm -hmm. how others react to him. Yeah. And then in just a couple pages, he's a grown adult, and there's no like transformation. We just have to understand that that's what William Faulkner like expects us to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And he gives us all these hints so that we can put it together and mm -hmm. um, learn the stuff on our own. And I think that I don't know. That just keeps me like so actively reading that book. Yes, definitely. There's never a dull moment, really, mm -hmm. because you have to just be always on your toes. Yeah. And, okay, what about the color-coded versions? Oh, um, Mr. Sudak, actually. Yeah, he has one. Yeah, I looked through it. Um, those things are expensive. It's gorgeous, yes. Oh, they're expensive. beautiful. Um, I don't think that there's enough colors in the rainbow to True. really, like, systematically explain that book. Mm -hmm. But it, I think it helps reading it like a second time around, like I wouldn't suggest it to a first time reader. That's true, it'd get to. And also um, the fact that I think Faulkner had originally wanted to figure out a way to mass market it as color coded, mm -hmm. but it was just too expensive because oh. as you said, like there are, the variations in color have to be pretty distinctive and there wasn't a way to do that with a larger print. And I think he tried to color code it by speaker and then also by timeline mm -hmm. <laughs> and because he jumps back and forth between both of those within every page um, there's just like too many colors on one page too hard to understand <laughs> so I think that reading it by yourself in just plain black and white mm -hmm. um, while it seems like it would be more helpful for it to be color-coded I think it's easier to do it black and white first yeah it's almost novel just to have the color-coded version. Oh yeah, it's more just for show. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Definitely. Mr. Sudak has ever actually read that No, book. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I well, and then it's kind of similar with Absalom Absalom, because that's a spinoff of Quentin, Quentin, isn't it? Well, As I Lay Dying is another like family dynamic mm -hmm. that's um, pretty similar to The Sound and the Fury. Um, I think The Sound and the Fury is a little more complex in the ideas of jumping back and forth between um, characters and like events in their yeah. life. Mm -hmm. um, I think as they lie dying is a little more, um, a little more easily grasped. Mm -hmm. And then at the extreme end is light in August, where oh, yeah. that's the most easy to understand stream of consciousness. I did, mm -hmm. but again, like interesting family dynamics with 
I don't know, Joe Christmas is how his name. <laughs> and like the woman who like runs away and she's pregnant and yeah. So that was the daughter. Oh yeah, the daughter came. Okay. It's all a jumble now, honestly. <laughs> all my characters are mixing up. <laughs> If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from me, there is an episode of DH&I for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our back catalogue of episodes. 2019 is the year of Didion, so if you'd like to follow along in my quest to read Joan Didion's collective works or learn more about the movement to bring lit back to people, everything can be found at didionandhawthorne.blueberry.net, and remember that Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Now you can also follow the show on Twitter with at didionin, two ends total. I'll be posting about new lit releases, reading lists, and of course the new projects and episodes relating to DH&I. Still there? One more thing then. Remember that leaving a comment or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other Guilty Pleasure podcast platform helps leverage the show so that other literature enthusiasts can find the community. In other words, it helps a ton. Auf Wiedersehen!